The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. 8474. We have three distinguished guests with us this morning. Dr. Scott Oliphant is Professor of Apologetics and Systematics at Westminster Theological Seminary of Philadelphia. He's also the Academic Dean. Uh, Dr. David Garner is VP of Advancement and Professor of uh, Systematic Theology at Westminster Seminary. And the one who's, be, who's going to be bringing God's Word to us this morning is uh, Dr. Peter Lilbeck, who's the President. Dr. Peter Lilbeck is also professor of church history. For 20 years before he assumed this office, I think 13 years ago, he was pastor of, of uh, Proclamation PCA in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Most importantly, he's a friend to us. We're so grateful uh, that they are here. We're looking to build on our friendship as well as our partnership between two institutions. And this morning, Dr. Lilbeck will be bringing God's word. Please come and bring God's word to us. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be with all of the uh, brothers and sisters and faculty here at Westminster, California. Uh, We will be having the joy of meeting together to strengthen our partnership and dream together about what God would have us do as common laborers in the kingdom of God in the field of theological education. Uh, In this devotional time, I want to turn our attention to Joshua chapter 5 to that marvelous story of the captain of the armies of the Lord, meeting Joshua, the captain of the armies of Israel. Please hear the reading of God's holy and infallible word as I begin reading at verse 13 of Joshua chapter 5. We'll read on through verse 2 of chapter 6. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand, And Joshua went up to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Thus far, God's reading. Uh, Let's pause for a moment in prayer. Lord God, we would ask that our study of your word today would be pleasing in your sight, that your spirit would be our teacher, and that we might say, by your great grace, we've been taught by God. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, we know that Joshua is extraordinarily well prepared to take up his task as the captain of Israel. Uh, He was the one who was with Moses in the wilderness wanderings. He had seen the mighty parting of the Red Seas. Like Moses, his name had spiritual significance. 
Moses' name suggests the drawing of a people to God out of a place of death. No man can come unto me except the Father in heaven draw him. Joshua, why his name is the Old Testament name of Jesus. Yeshua. This is Jesus in a remarkable picture of historical redemptive revelation. The redemptive historical account that we see cries out for us to consider the Jesus of the New Testament. At any rate, at this moment, Joshua has now seen the death of Moses. He has heard the I am say to him, you are going to be in charge. He is called, commissioned, and installed into a place of leadership. In the first four chapters of Joshua, he sees, if you will, his command such that he is able to come to the very edge of the promised land and see Jericho looming before them. The spies have gone out. Rahab the prostitute has given insights into this special city that is the gateway to the promised land. Israel has crossed the Jordan, if you will, a second exodus, a crossing of waters that were flooding. And as a result of God's blessing, 12 memorial stones are set up. And the fear of Israel falls upon all of the nations because they have heard what God has done. Now, this extraordinary preparation of Joshua to lead the captain of the armies is coupled with the extraordinary preparation of Israel to be the invading army of God into the land that was set aside and promised for generations. This conquest of the enemy requires a people ready to follow Joshua, the one who set aside to lead them. In chapter 5, the new generation is circumcised. Uh, They had not been circumcised as they'd wandered in the 40 years wilderness journey. They come to a place that becomes known as Gilgal. The rolling away of the reproach of Egypt becomes part of their story. They take the time that's necessary for their bodies to heal and for the covenant sign to be something that's a rejoicing and not a suffering. Then they celebrate for the first time the Passover in the promised land. And they ate something they hadn't seen for four decades, homegrown food. They went out and found corn on the cob or wheat ears, and they began to eat whatever it was that was their food, and they were rejoicing. And wouldn't you know it, the very next day, the manna stops falling. The Lord says, you don't need extraordinary blessings anymore. And we obviously learn a great lesson right here. The ordinary means of grace is what God intends for his people. He expects us when we have no longer circumcision but baptism, no longer the Passover but the Lord's Supper, that we don't look for miracles, but we now look for the manna that's come down from heaven, the manna from God, the manna of his truth and word that feeds our souls on everlasting life. This is sufficient for us to take on the tasks before us. And so we realize as we look at an extraordinarily well-prepared leader, an extraordinarily well-prepared people. They are now looking at the gateway to the land that God had promised them. All seem to be green lights to go for the conquest, but not so. Although Joshua and Israel are prepared for the battle, they still are not ready to engage Jericho. Joshua, the captain of Israel, must meet the commander of the armies of the I Am and learn that his personal, humble, and obedient worship is essential for the advance of the kingdom of God. This is the encounter, then, that we look at here. 
In verse 13, we realize that Joshua is near Jericho. This is one of the oldest, most long-inhabited cities on the planet. It can be dated back to perhaps 7,000 B.C. It is on the lowest place on the planet. This, if you will, is the city of man at the lowest place on terra firma. It is the strategic gateway to the place that God has called him to go. The name may well mean the moon, meaning it's a place that worshiped the goddess of darkness. This is the place, if you will, that represents man's rebellion to God. And so this is the place that Joshua, Jesus, is coming to and looking. We don't know who or how he got to this point. He probably was alone by the basis of the story. We don't know if he was reconnoitering to determine where was the best approach for the attack, or if he was praying over the city, or if he was doing both. But he unexpectedly encounters a man who is a warrior, who is in a threatening posture. He lifts up his eyes and looked, and behold, it is an unexpected sight, something that he had not anticipated. And he sees the man before him with a drawn sword. In fact, the word that's used here is used in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 30, where it says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. This man is withstanding. He is a barrier, a blockade for Joshua to go any further. With a drawn sword, he realizes that this is a moment of life and death confrontation. And it is utterly remarkable when we read the text that courageously, Joshua does not halt. He does not falter. But the text says he goes to him. He walks forward. He is unafraid. And undoubtedly, ringing in his ears are the great words that the I am had spoken to him in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so confident in the promise of the I am to be with him always, he goes forward straight to the one who is ready to apparently attack him. And he asks the question that every military man knows. Are you for us or against us, friend or foe? Who are you and why are you here? And the unexpected response is no. Isn't that amazing? Let that sink in. He's saying, no, you're asking the wrong question. It's not whether I'm for you or against you. It's whether you're for me or against me. I am the commander of the armies of the living God. Now, when you think about that scene, the next thing we find is that Joshua has fallen flat on his face. His nose and forehead are on the ground. And no military man simply falls before an adversary based upon a word. We don't know what happened. There's no password that's given. There's no credentials that are offered. My humble suggestion is, he said, I know that voice. He's spoken to me before. He's the one who said, be strong and courageous, fear not. I have made you the captain of the armies of Israel. And he knew it instantly. He was before the one who had called him to do this job. And so with this unexpected response, he says, now I have come. The now in the Hebrew is emphatic. 
It is not the Vav consecutive that suggests that this is just a continuation of the story. This is that punctiliar statement of this is the Kairos moment of history. This is the moment where I have been waiting for, where all of history has been moving to just right now, where the promised one, the Joshua, the Jesus, is coming to the city of man to conquer it and slay the enemies and enter in and take it as his own. Now I have come because this is what I've been waiting for. I have come to meet you, Joshua, because the victory is yours. But it's not because you're prepared. It's not because the people of Israel prepared. It's because you are going to humbly bow and worship in my presence in a personal relationship upon my power, upon my might, upon my calling, upon your life. He knew that voice. He had heard it audibly, but now he saw it visibly. Yes, remarkably. He could not tell the greatness of the person who was in front of him. He looked very normal. Looked like any other great warrior that you might find in battle. And so there's a suggestion here that there's one that's far greater who's humbled himself so that he might be known. Might we suggest here that Yeshua meets Joshua? Is this when Jesus met Jesus? Quite an extraordinary story. And so at this precise moment, Joshua recognizes who this one is. And he says, what does my Lord say to his servant? It's Adonai, the one who is in charge. He is the leader. And now Joshua's become the Ebed, the servant. He says, I'm not the captain of Israel. I am your servant. Oh, what a mighty picture that is for every one of us who thinks we are well-prepared with a well-prepared congregation following us. We're going to take on the world. We cannot do it until we fall flat on our face and say, I am nothing. You must increase and I must decrease. You are the one that will enable our advance of your kingdom. And of course, this unexpected answer and this unexpected person is met by an unexpected message. Take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you're standing is holy. I contemplate that and say, he's not even standing. He's flat on his face. He's anticipating you are going to get up in a minute. And when you stand there, get those shoes off. Because your shoes, even though they're extraordinary shoes, likely the shoes that never wore out for four decades in the wilderness, these shoes must go because they have the world in the wilderness. But now you are standing in a place that's been made holy because I am here. And so the shoes must come off. And the land that is utterly wicked, the land of Canaan, the land of child sacrifice, with all of its false gods, where the only believer that's even known in the land is a prostitute that's fearing for her own life, this land has now become holy, not because of Joshua, but because the I am is present. He is the one that makes the land holy. The identity of the commander of the I am's armies must indeed be a Christophany. Calvin thought so. The great church fathers thought so. The evidence seems to be strong in this regard. 
The title commander of the IM's armies is another way of saying the Lord of hosts. Joshua's instant submission. This seems totally out of character for a battle scene before another unless there was a self-authenticating authority, an instant recognition that God's word was speaking. The commander accepts the worship. He does not reprove him and say, how can you worship me? I'm just a human, an angel. He accepts it and asks for more. He says, take your shoes off because what you're doing is right, but it's not sufficient. Further, he commands the very thing that the great I am that I am commanded at the burning bush in Exodus 3. His presence makes the place holy, a property that belongs only to deity. And because the chapter break at chapter 6 and verse 1 is arbitrary and man-made, if we read the narrative as a consecutive force, we realize that in verse 2 it says, and the I am said to him, the Commander of the armies of Israel is now Yahweh himself. And so we see that Paul will teach us the same in 1 Corinthians 10.4, that Christ followed them in the wilderness. And like the future incarnate Christ, the man who is seen hides someone who's far greater than he appears to be. Is this not the Christ? Is this not the extraordinary moment where Joshua meets Yeshua? Where Jesus meets Jesus. Indeed, is it not just that Abraham, it's not that just Abraham saw Christ stay and rejoice, as Jesus will say in John 8, but we can say Joshua saw his day and rejoiced as well. And we read then, and Joshua did so, falling to worship, instantly obedience must follow. And we learn here that if we are truly worshiping, obedience is inseparable from it. Obedience that has authenticity flows out of worship, and worship that is real in the presence of God leads to an obedience of God's call upon our lives. Worshipful obedience alone could cause the walls of Jericho to fall. Joshua himself had to first fall before the I am that I am, before the walls he would attack would fall as Israel worshiped God marching around the city. When we come to chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. This might be rendered, it was closed and was closing. It wasn't just that they closed the city, that wasn't closed enough. They were doing everything they could do to keep this presence that had barricaded them from making any advance. And it's interesting that the Chaldean will say this, And Jericho was shut up with iron doors and fortified with brazen bolts so that none came out either to combat or to make offers of peace. It's not shut up within only, but it's shut up as well by Israel's sieging the city. There is no way of, a, of any encounter. The next move would be God's judgment through his people. And then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. God's promise of sovereign grace is now resting upon the ministry of the Old Testament Jesus. The kingdoms of the earth will become your kingdoms, he says, because my hand is at work and you've honored me. Here we are reminded of the encouraging New Testament promises given to us as the covenant people of God 
It is with divine weapons that we are to tear down strongholds, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10. And we are to become more than conquerors in Romans 8. Our divine weapons are this humble, personal, obedient worship according to God's word. We do not just conquer, we conquer through worship. And that's why we're more than conquerors. We're not just military men. We are worshipers whose songs and prayers fight for us when we go forth to advance the kingdom of God because God is fighting for us in what Old Testament theologians have called the incarnate character of the holy war of Israel. God is fighting in his people, for his people, with his weapons. And as we conclude then, must we not see here how the incarnate commander of the armies is really the one that we are to look forward to? Our Lord Jesus, when he became man, fulfilled this Christophany. He said he saw Satan fall, even as Joshua saw Jericho fall. Even as Joshua shut up the city of Jericho, he came and bound the strong man in order to spoil the city. When the incarnate Jesus came to Jericho, he conquered the darkness of the moon god of sin and death by granting light and sight to the blind. He also was a friend of sinners, and just as Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, Jesus spared Zacchaeus, the publican. He too told a leader of the kingdom of God to take off his shoes, not because the ground of the upper room was holy, but because he was going to make the selfish apostles' feet and heart holy. He was to do this not because of the drawn sword that would be used against the city of man, but because of the sword of the word of God, which is the Spirit's word to his people, and because of the nails and the sword that would pierce his hands, his feet, and yes, his side. Thus, even as Joshua fell before the commander of the armies of the I Am, we must fall as the guard did on the night that Jesus was being arrested. And as the heavenly host does before the glorious lamb who has been slain, who is standing before the throne of God. And so by our humble, personal, and obedient worship of this great commander, this Christ, the kingdom of God advances. And so is fulfilled the words of Revelation. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet and the loud voices in heaven declare, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The simple message this story brings to us is, your preparation is wonderful, but it's not enough. The sacramental preparations you lead your congregation in, they're marvelous, they're glorious, they're not enough. Your ability to work hard and see your labors being sufficient to meet the needs in the budget. That's wonderful. They're not enough. You are not ready to take on the adversaries of the kingdom of God until you personally fall on your face before the living God and say, I'm nothing. What is your message for your servant? Here I am. Send me. Lord God, would you bless this study of your word? We thank you for the privilege that we've had to reflect on it today. May we once again joyfully give our hearts promptly and sincerely to you, our Christ, our commander, our king. Advance your kingdom through your unworthy servants. And in your name we pray. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. 
You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.